for all the, whoa, excuse me. Thank you, Lord, for uh, all that you have done for us. Thank you for bringing us together today in, in the family of God. And we pray that you will be with us this morning as we go through your word. Uh, speak through me. Uh, uh, speak in, 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 a, in a way that, Lord, uh, it is not my words, but yours that is spoken. And, uh, Lord, I, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you for the, uh, the enrichment that we receive from it and the food that we receive from it. And we pray that you feed us today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we are singing the various songs and reading the scripture, which the scripture was uh, intentionally picked by me, um, but the songs, I, I, uh, I know Joe looks at the, the topic and picks things based on that, but uh, today's message is on who am I, and the answer or the, the, the statement that we're working on is you are righteous, and basically the passage we read and the songs we've been singing we could actually walk away right now because we've had the answer about uh, why we are righteous. It was because of Jesus, but I'll, I'll try to uh, walk us through it a little bit this morning. We've been preaching on this, preaching this summer on who am I, taking a look at our identity in Christ, meaning as a Christian, who am I? Why am I different than other people, uh, than other people that I may run into at work or in my neighborhood or in my family? Uh, what's different about me? Who am I? We covered a lot of ground so far this summer. We still have several more topics that we'd like to cover before returning to Matthew and I think finishing Matthew in the fall, um, but we'll begin uh, picking up in Matthew again at the beginning of September, so about one more month of this summer series. We've spoken about a number of scriptural terms so far, uh, such as justification, sanctification, adoption, being chosen by God. And I wanted to make sure that we haven't been losing anyone as we've been going through this. Not that I'm going to go through all those topics again, but we want, to, we want you to know that we want you to not only have an understanding about these topics that we've been dealing with through, through the summer. But we want you to understand the importance of these topics in, in your life as a Christian. What does it matter if I understand what justification is or sanctification? It, it's just a word in some regards. And, you know, a lot of people I know over the years, and that was probably me earlier in my Christian walk, you hear these religious terms or biblical terms and you just, Oh, I don't even want to even tackle that word because it's it's complicated. I, I like just reading simple verses that kind of tickle my fancy. But these verses are throughout the scripture and they're important for us. They're there for us. And while you are, in fact, all these various things, you are justified, you are sanctified, you're adopted. Although we're all these things, if you understand them or not. I believe that you have a much greater love and appreciation for what God has done on your behalf if you have a better idea on what took place. And I think more importantly, about what it costs to accomplish it. 
You should be able to read the Scriptures and come to terms such as these. Or as last week in 1 John chapter 4, we saw the word propitiation. Or that we are justified by His grace that we might see in Romans 3 and other places. And that we should be able to know how to define them. These are words that describe the work of Christ. And you should not run from them, but instead seek to understand them fully through study and prayer. By the way, propitiation from last week is something that's done to a person. Christ propitiated God in that he turned God's wrath away from guilty sinners by enduring that wrath himself on the cross. That's what propitiation is. Justification is a a legal term or a legal declaration in which God pardons the sinner of all his or her sins. Imagine that. All the sins. Not just what you have done, but what you are going to do. All your sins. And accepts and accounts the sinner as righteous in his sight. What a great declaration. Justification is an act of God. There's nothing we do to accomplish it. It's all God. He declares the sinner righteous at the very moment that the sinner puts his or her trust in Jesus Christ. It's accomplished. See, both of these terms are important to understand. So don't be afraid of these and other hard words that you may come across in your reading of Scripture. They're there for you to understand and they're there for you to be blessed and encouraged by their meaning. Today I want to look at a couple other words. I'm going to add it to our list. Righteousness. And impute it. And we'll begin with righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous? How can a person be righteous before God? How can I be right before God? This is a question that man has struggled with since the fall. This is a question that Job asked. Job is believed to be one of the first books of the Bible to be written. It took place around the time of the patriarchs, so very early in human history. And way back then, they were asking this same question that's asked today. Let's take a look at Job for a second. I'm going to have you looking through your Bible at a couple passages, so hopefully you have not become too used to us putting scriptures up on the TV for you. Let's turn to Job chapter 9 for a minute. I'll give you a second to find that. Job chapter 9. In this chapter, Job is replying to comments by his companions that we find as you read that. I think Job sometimes wonder if it is good to have them there along with him or not. 
But he's responding to comments by his companions, and he asks a question in verse 2 of chapter 9. It says, truly I know that it is so, but here's the question. But how can a man be in the right before God? He looks at his companions going, how, how, how do we do this? How is it possible? And I think that's what he means more of it. How is this even possible that we could be right before God? He's asking, how does a sinful man, and I'm sure he's considering himself in that category, stand before a holy, righteous God? He goes through, and we're not going to read all of chapter 9, but he goes through chapter 9 and he describes God. He describes God's might. He describes God's wisdom. And then he gets to verse 20, where he declares that though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, He would prove me perverse. Let me help you a little bit with translating some of the words that are being used here because it isn't always something we're used to using today. But he says, he, Job, is blameless in his eyes. That I'm blameless, but he, God, would prove me guilty. Prove me perverse. That's what that word means, guilty. So even though Job could claim in his own judgment and probably be agreed upon by people who know him in the community that he was guiltless, he knew that he is not seen to be guiltless before God on his own worth or actions. There's nothing that he can do to be right before this God on his own. And he knows that. This is the story of all the religions of men throughout the ages. Regardless of what religion you name, with the exception of Christianity, man seeks to answer, how do I make myself right by my own efforts, before whatever God he may have imagined or may be worshiping. That's his goal. How do I I make myself right? How do I make myself holy? How do I make myself pure? And it's always based upon what that person can do in their own uh, actions. But Job understood And the Bible is very clear that man cannot be right with God by any means of their own power, regardless of how religious you may be, or how good you are, or how blameless you may think you are. There's nothing you can do to be right before God on your own. Paul also understood this as he wrote his letter to the church in Philippi. Turn now to the New Testament, to Philippians chapter 3. We'll take a look at a couple verses there. Excuse me a second. 
Philippians chapter 3. Here Paul names some of his greatest accomplishments in his life as he saw them. Chapter, or, uh, verse 5 of, of uh, chapter 3. He speaks of himself saying, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. So he's identifying himself as one of God's chosen people, which to the Jews in particular, this was tremendous. The identity to be God's chosen people, they are in their eyes far above everybody else on earth because of that. So he's identifying himself as one of those. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, which is a way for him to say that he was a traditionalist in the way that he is worshiping and following the law. As to the law of Pharisee, he was from the group of Jews that was most committed to following the law to the point of being uh, hyper uh, legalistic in in many ways. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, who he saw before he was a Christian, but he saw the followers of Jesus as the enemies of truth. So he was a very diligent persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. In Judaism, no one could cast an accusation on Paul. You looked at Paul in those days and people who knew him and they probably all looked at him and said, that's what I want to be like when I grow up. Paul is is the example of Judaism. Paul was a very accomplished hypocrite, as many Pharisees were. But notice what he writes in verse 7. But whatever gain... I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Everything that Paul once counted as great accomplishments in life of righteousness. He thought all these things he was doing for God, he now saw as rubbish because he knew that he can do nothing in his own strength that will make him right before God. All that stuff he did in the past is in the trash. It means nothing. Absolutely nothing. Paul also expounds on this in the first few chapters of Romans. Where beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, he writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He begins a section of Romans there dealing with the wrath of God, but over unrighteousness and sinners. And then he transitions eventually into, but what can we do about that? What, what, what has been accomplished? 
And while the word ungodliness in this passage can have several uses in Scripture, here it means all human beings. All ungodliness, all unrighteousness, it's including everybody that ever existed after the garden. Unrighteousness, ungodliness. All human beings are not like God. And they're in a state of opposition to God in his godly nature. Men are wicked and they're unrighteous. God is holy, but people are unholy. That's the dilemma we have. That's what we're facing. This is why we need salvation. This is why we needed God to do something to make this different. Because without His plan of salvation, we are doomed. We're doomed. In chapter 2 of Romans, Paul wrote, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So he he goes through this section of uh, chapter 1 talking about unrighteousness and God's wrath on that. He gets to chapter 2, and in verse 2, he he, uh, establishes that that wrath, that judgment against unrighteousness is justified. It's proper. It's, it's, It's what is deserved. And it says that judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And what things are we, are we talking about or what things are, is he talking about? Up at the end of chapter 1, he goes through a listing of items that he wrote about man's unrighteousness. He says, God has given them up to a debased mind to, be, to do what ought not to be done. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, Malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Who's he talking about? All men. All the unrighteous. All the ungodly. That's who he's talking about. You may be sitting there thinking right now that, hmm, I don't think I'm in that list. I'm thinking if you look a little deeper, you're going to see that you're probably repeated in that list several times. I know I am. I may not have murdered anybody, but I was disobedient to my parents. Don't ever tell them that. They they may not know that and they're present. Don't want to reveal anything. Haters of God, being gossipers, being slanderers. I've done all those things. I've done those, some of those things since I've been a believer. So I'm sure I've done them since I, before I was a believer. But these people, Paul says, they not only do them in their cells, but they encourage and condone others to do them as well. They go around going, hey, come on. You know, what's, what's disobeying obeying your parent? What's breaking the law? What's, 
gossiping, gossiping about that person that uh, you have some problem with. Don't be such a goody two-shoes. It's okay. So they're encouraging people to do it. So he is able to say, Paul is able to say with certainty that we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Because God is holy and righteous and pure. He cannot allow sin any sin to go unpunished. If you've sinned one time in your life, actively or passively, you're unrighteous. And I would imagine that took place a long time ago for most of us. It has a pretty lengthy list behind it. I'll jump up to, uh, if you're in that uh, section, uh, Romans chapter 3. I'm sorry that uh, we don't have time to go through all these chapters because there is just such a wealth of of verses in here. But hopefully you'll get my point as we move forward. Chapter 3, verse 10. This is one of the verses that we... Uh, commonly see used when you are evangelizing or witnessing uh, to a lost person. We have it in the back of the the bullet. In fact, it's part of the Roman road that we uh, uh, have went over and uh, offered to you to be able to use if you have an opportunity to to, uh, speak to someone about Christ. Romans 3.10 As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. Don't need a whole lot of deciphering on that to understand what it says. No one. It's inclusive of everybody. This passage is actually taken from Psalms 14, where there the psalmist wrote concerning the fools who have said in their heart, there is no God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. That's what that passage is from. This is inclusive of all men and women. Charles Spurgeon preached on this Psalms 14, on that passage. And he said in the sermon, where there is enmity, which is the state of active opposition or hostility to God, there is deep inward depravity of mind. The words are rendered by eminent critics in, that, in an active sense. This may serve to remind us that sin is not only in our nature passively. It isn't that we are not only just born with that sin nature, And we don't even have to really do much about it. It's already there. And it's there as a source of evil. But we ourselves actively actively fan the flame and corrupt ourselves, making them blacker still, which was black as darkness itself already. We rivet our own chains by habit and continuance. Now, nobody can talk like 
Charles Spurgeon. <laughs> would have been something to, to be able to be present and hear him preach a sermon. So we are unrighteous and ungodly. We deserve the wrath of God because of that. We are sinners. No one is righteous. No one. And He is a righteous God and a holy God. And there again lies our dilemma. This brings us to the the other word that I want to talk about, imputed. That word is, is actually not found in the Bible itself. If you were to look in your concordance or your topics and look up imputed, you won't find it necessarily. It is a technical, tech, uh, theological term used to communicate a key truth from Scripture. Just as the word Trinity is not a word that you would find in Scripture. But it is revealed throughout Scripture to be a fact and to be uh, 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 you know, a word that is, is appropriate. In Romans 4, Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? That's verse 1. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This phrase, it was counted to him as righteousness, that's what imputed means. Paul says that, it says it a little bit clearer back in uh, Philippians 3 where we were at a minute ago. After giving his life's accomplishments, in verse 9 he says, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Or a better way to read this would be righteousness that comes from God. We can't be right on our own before God, but we can be righteous before God because of what He does for us. It is righteousness that comes from God. This is the Gospel message. This is what it's all about. If you want to be right before God, you must have the righteousness that comes from God. It's the only place you can get it. Jesus, by His obedience on the cross, fully paid the penalty due to us on account of sin. Because we were unrighteous and unholy and ungodly, and we faced wrath as an unbeliever, we needed Jesus to do this, 
to be obedient to the cross. And not only did it pay the penalty due to us, but his obedience also meets the demand for perfect righteousness that God requires of all mankind. God requires us to be holy, even if you can't be holy, because he's holy. And we're able to accomplish that through the perfect righteousness of God, of Jesus, and for his obedience. Imputation communicates that believers are made right with God or justified on the basis of the obedience of Christ. Imputation may may also refer to the counting of believers' sins to Christ as the sin-bearing substitute. He took on my sins. And he imputed his righteousness on me. In conclusion, we are made righteous because God has imputed Christ's righteousness to us. That's how it's done. But how does it happen? The Westminster Shorter Catechism states on the question, what is justification? This answer. Justification is an act of God's free gift wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. It's it's through faith that we receive this free gift of grace. If you have never experienced this gift, I'm offering it to you this morning. Don't leave this morning. If you think that you are among the ungodly without talking to somebody, catch me after the service and I'll be glad to walk you through some verses and show you how this grace can be yours too. Let's celebrate communion together now. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to share with us. The ushers are going to pass out the elements and please just hold them and we'll partake of them together uh, once they're all passed out.